Praise God for our assembly today. We can worship and pray, study God's holy word together. Will you get your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of Ephesians? Continue our sermon series through this wonderful letter written by Paul to the believers in the region of Ephesus. We're in chapter 4. Today we will continue and focus in on verse 15. Thankful for God's providence that we get to continue in this way, um, continue to study this this letter together, God's holy word. I want to read verse 11 through 16 for a reminder of context as we dig into verse 15 this morning. Look at it with me. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God's good word. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is our focus this morning, church. Paul starts verse 15 with the word rather to bring contrast to what was just said, emphasizing based on what was just said in verse 14. So rather than being like children who are too easily tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather than that, we are to grow up. We who belong to Christ are to speak the truth. If false doctrine and sinful worldly ideologies are lies, much of our focus last week, what is the truth? To combat all of that. The truth is God. The truth is God's word. It's sound doctrine. It's Jesus. In a world full of spiritual immaturity and false doctrine and fleshly deceit, we are desperate for truth. In a world full of manipulation, we need a, a guiding light. And we need to be about sharing the light of that truth for the good of others around us. Paul is going to say in Ephesians 4 verse 21, the truth is in Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
When Jesus says, I am the truth, Jesus is saying that all other philosophies, whether postmodernism, existentialism, secular humanism, man-made theologies, all other religions, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, will, will fail to arrive at ultimate truth. Why? Because the truth is only found in Jesus. And therefore, no man-made ideology and or religion will do. Because our federal head, Adam, who represented all of mankind, exchanged truth for a lie in the Garden of Eden. The lie of Satan was believed. And the the demise of mankind is sin and death. As God promised it would be. This meant we as the human race are good at embracing deceit and lies and manipulations. Not not just randomly, but all the time. We're prone to, to believe what is not true. Oh, how desperate we are for truth. Paul says this well in Romans 1.18 that mankind suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. This suppression of the truth is clearly evident in the currently predominant worldview of postmodernism. Postmodern thought is essentially a rejection of absolute objective truth. The hallmark of postmodern thought is the death of truth. Surely we need to see as Christians who are enlightened see the work of the enemy to perpetuate such a deceiving concept and make it normal. And all the more normal parents for our younger generations. Our culture is literally redefining what God has defined clearly. And they're calling it good. The thought is that there's no defining boundaries or truthful clarities. That life is whatever you want to make it. The result is belief that everyone has his or her own truth. Just think about it with me for a moment. Do you see why fleshly people would struggle to reject the idea that I can make it whatever I want it to be? Right? And surely this has been our struggle, especially, church, sometimes when we come up against good, bold, solid truths and commands in Holy Scripture. Our flesh sometimes wants to combat that, wants to say, but, but, but I think there could be a better way to do this, a better system we could apply that, that would make my life easier, better, more fun. And so we, we are constantly fighting this thing to say, maybe it can kind of be my truth. It can kind of be my thing. And I'm going to figure out a way to make that okay. On the surface, you might say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that everyone gets to define their own truth. That, that's nonsense. But have you ever found yourself saying, to each his own, as a way to kind of dismiss someone who's kind of off the rocker or maybe saying something you don't really like and you don't really want to mess with it anymore. So you, you just kind of put it away. Oh, to each his own. 
Do you realize in the end, that statement essentially is, your truth can be your truth, my truth can be mine, and let's just call that good and let's move on. You do you, I'll do me. But, but, but this kind of thinking doesn't stay easy and surfacey and minor. No, it turns into, you want to call yourself something you're not? Sure, fine. And I'll even join you. Like, what, what terms do I need to use to call you that? You know, you're Voltron? Okay, I'm going to call you Voltron. <laughs> and we play into it. This is the fruit of postmodern thinking. This is the fruit of a rejection of truth. If there ever was evidence of a God, of, of a God rejecting culture, we're, we're in it. The height of arrogance is to say that one's truth is actually truth. Paul says here that the true and maturing Christian doesn't say, you do you and I'll do me. Instead, we say God is truth. And we are to submit ourselves to that truth and not make our own way. The postmodern culture hates this, though. And sadly, many self-professed Christians hate it, too. Because giving people room to find their own way seems loving and caring. Therefore, those who stand on absolute truth are all too often considered fundamentalist. We're accused of being people who are out to suppress and judge those who think differently. Shame on you, they'll say. Who are you? See with me that absolute truth is far too narrow for a sin-filled culture that wants it their way. Modern man's rejection of truth is equal to the mess of current practices. Cancel culture. Political correctness. Required tolerance for everything and anything. Moral relativism, new age spirituality, religious syncretism, ethnic recompense, sexual redefinition. But we who belong to Christ must understand there is no middle ground. The culture that's deceived is trying to woo us. They're trying to call us. Will you just come play in some form of middle ground? Can, can it be okay for me to be different than you? And we both call that true and good and we find our way. No, there is truth and there's not. If Jesus is not the truth, the absolute truth and the gospel he proclaims is utterly broken based on his own declarations of himself. There's not a way to say, I'm going to define many of my own truths, and then also I'm going to add Jesus to that. I've pointed out often that, that the coexist movement and bumper sticker works as long as you remove the T, you remove the cross from it. Because everything else has failed. It can coexist all at once. By Jesus' own declarations, there's not a way to include Christianity in coexistence of other religious beliefs. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm the only way. He was so clear. The reality is truth is found only in God. It's a theocentric system 
And therefore, it's absolute. Because there is no authority or perspective greater than His. Human, no human, no group can accomplish or redefine better than God what's true. It's only our arrogance that causes us, our sin that causes us to think that we have a better way to do it. And so we slip into sinful lies, fleshly, self-serving pursuits to shed what God has called good and find a different way to make it happen. We pursue intimacy outside of marriage. Justification for cheating the government on taxes. Manipulation of others so that the situation best serves us. And on and on. Just as Paul is saying, rather than, be, than acting like children tossed to and fro by the waves, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, we who belong to Christ speak truth. And when Jesus says, I am the truth, this is meant to be revolutionary to our lives. We who trust in Him, we who live to honor Him. Why? Because in a world and a lifetime of deception and manipulation, you finally know true north. Your compass has been all over and finally it works. And you know what true north is. You know what truth is now. This is a gift. This is a blessing. We can finally find our way in Christ alone. And we who belong to Christ can finally live and speak truth. King David speaks to the reality that God's word is truth in Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Steve said this well in a sermon a few years ago. Bless me, I want to share it with you. I want to remind you of it now. He said, unless you know everything exhaustively, including the past, present, and future, you cannot be certain that what you think you know is true. In other words, you're still guessing. Unless we know all things exhaustively, we cannot be certain that things we think we know are true unless we have someone who does know all things exhaustively and reveals the truth to us. Since man is incapable of exhaustive knowledge, we must see that we are dependent upon God who does have this perfect knowledge in order for us to have certainty of truth. God knows the past, the present, and the future because He is all-knowing. God knows every hair on every head. He knows every animal that exists and where they are right now. God knows the moment your heart began to beat and He knows the moment that it will stop. He knows the number, the size, the shape of every star in the sky because He has created all things and He rules over all things. God is omniscient. There's nothing He doesn't know. He's omnipresent. There's nowhere God doesn't exist. He's omnipotent. He has ultimate power. He's sovereign. He rules over all things. Our God has also graciously made Himself known to us. He's made Himself known in a general way through creation. And He's made Himself known in a much deeper way through God the Son and through His written Word. Church, we can be certain that His revelation is true because He, God, 
is truth. Amen? See why I blessed me? Thank you, brother. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Man is created. Man is fallible. But God is not. He's holy, eternal, immutable. He's truth. He cannot lie. He has no falsehood. Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the truth. The Holy Scriptures are the truth. And all of it represents the God of truth. We who are the church, we who are the redeemed, we who belong to Christ are to live in and speak the truth in all we do and say. Paul says this so poignantly to Timothy at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14-15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Lean in, church. This is for us. Which is the church of the living God. A pillar, a putress of truth. We are to be about and live and thrive in the truth of God. That's our testimony. Because we're connected to Him. So I ask you, are you all about God's truth? The truth that is Christ. The truth that is God's Word. I really want you to do business with this. Like, How flippant are you with what God has made clear to be true? And, and so you're guilty of really doing a lot of your days kind of your own way. You're not, you're not looking for Him to guide and instruct and direct you. You're busy. So then maybe you're not really about that truth. Now, I, I want to say you're here today. This is a huge practice of your weekly commitment to not usurp the gathering of the saints for the study and growing in the Word and the, and the accountability and, and press and encouragement and prayer that comes with being together. And, and there's a reorientation to truth that we need. And that's much of Paul's context here in these verses. Are you all about the truth? The truth that is Christ. The truth that is God's Word. The truth that combats the lies and the feelings and the man-made, self-serving, idol-worshiping priorities of the flesh. Now look at our verse again. Paul is not just saying that we are to speak truth. A closer look here shows something more all-encompassing. The word truth in the Greek here is actually a participle. So it's much more than just speaking truth in love. It's more technically saying that we are truthing in love. What's intended here is that the truth is not just spoken, but it is lived out. It's a marker of how we live. We who belong to Christ don't, don't live by our feelings. We don't live by the authority of man, the wisdom of man. We live by the Word of God. We live by the truth. What does this mean for us? It means we... This can't just be a great mantra that we speak the truth in love. It must be a way of life that we are truthing in love. So, again, I ask you to do some honest inventory this morning. How are you truly growing in the word of truth? How are you trusting God's truth 
versus man's best experts. How are you proclaiming truth to combat the lies and deception of the flesh? Because there, there can be a way that we manipulate. I mean, you can really feel strongly in opposition to something God's Word is making clear you are to do or say or believe. And then we can go so far to be really good about gathering some people around us to kind of affirm the way we're feeling about that and tell us, like, hey, this is going to be okay to go this other road. And we, we kind of build ourselves this, 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 this other community to help us kind of feel better about it. It can't be, church. We need the truth to be central. There's a God-ordained balance that he intends for us to do this with. Let's look, and Paul really brings it, brings it to a central view here. Look with me at the next few words. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Truth cannot just be a bombardment of the facts. Truth must be accompanied by love. Hear this. If it's going to be truly Christian. There are a lot of ways that our flesh can hear this statement. Speaking the truth in love. And then turn it into a lot of things it's not saying. We can do this by redefining love in a fleshly way. Or misapplying the love that is meant to be partnered with truth. Let me first say this. Hear this clearly. It is loving to speak the truth. Because you're not loving someone to avoid the truth and tell them lies. That's not loving. That's self-serving. You do that because there's something else you're more in love with. You, you value that relationship or the circumstances that come with the lie more than God and His truth. You do this because you, you don't want truth-telling to affect your relationship. And so you tell a lie in the name of love. But see with me that this is not love. Because true love is selfless. It's not self-serving. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. True love is selfless and sacrificial, which means you are willing to love someone even when it's really hard on you. Even if it costs you something. But in that, you don't give away truth. This is how we fight the fleshly tendency to tell them what they want to hear in the name of love even if it's not true. This is why we must fight the fleshly tendency to not tell the truth in the name of love because we don't want to offend them or affect our relationship. 
Paul says in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. In, le- in other words, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be honest. Let love be true. Genuine love doesn't try to say or be something it's not. It's authentic. It's genuine. It's honest. But also remember that genuine love is like God, which means then what you don't get to do is say, hey, I'm going to be really genuine with you, and then in that you're going to be really mean or or really self-serving, really lazy. No, 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 because genuine love that that is God, that is like God, is obedient it is righteous it will not compromise honoring god in order to play it out this is emphasizing what paul is saying here abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good in other words it is not loving to not abhor what is evil the world will say hey just be more loving of all this nonsense that's not loving if i'm not abhorring what is evil It is not love to watch someone you love struggling and or sinning, and then out of fear, you stay distant and say nothing. The danger is you think, oh, he he or she, they'll figure it out. Or you think, no, I, I don't want to cause conflict. But why are you really doing that? You avoid really loving them by confronting them because you are motivated by self love. Because you want them to love you, so you don't upset the apple cart, even though the apple cart's about to run them over. But this is not, that's not Christ honoring. See how selfish that is. See how sinful that is. It's not what Christians do. We are to love them by speaking truth, even when it's hard, even when it might cost you the relationship. Because if we don't, then we're really not loving them. Or honoring the Lord, we're joining the deception. We're joining the lie in order to make nice. Church, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. This is another way of saying speaking the truth in love. We, the church, should not be content to pretend or to watch others struggle in lies. We are If we're going to really love each other, we must be honest and speak truth. This means we sit down with our Christian family who are openly practicing sin, and we say, I love you, and I'm concerned because what I see you pursuing is against what God has made clear in His Word. This is life in the body, church. This is speaking truth in love. You don't let people you love struggle with things that can be helped without at least fighting for them. And we do this by speaking truth. Realize when you do this, you're fighting for them. You're not fighting against them. You're loving them. And if they don't want to cling to the truth of God, the truth of God's Word, then they're choosing to resign. They're choosing to believe the lie. That's their choice. You don't fall into that. You do what honors God. You love them. I pray that we can truly and fully love one another in truth. 
that truth guides us, convicts us. We don't back away for fear or for self-serving reasons. Now, we still need to be patient with each other. We need to be kind. You need to be willing to walk with a weaker brother or sister in their struggles and not just dump piles of bricks on them in the name of truth and love. There must be a discernment in this, a, a patience. But that patience doesn't mean you don't speak truth. See, sometimes I hear people say, oh, I'm just being patient with them. Yeah, so for how long do you keep the truth in the drawer? Because they need the truth to be convicted. I'm not saying, again, you go dump it all on their head at one time. There might be a helping them take their next step. But you still don't put away truth. You can do it patiently, but patience doesn't mean inactivity in truth. When we speak truth, we must do it in a loving way, in a way that helps them take their next step. To remove the love of God from the truth we speak is to speak a bitter orthodoxy. Truth and love must go together. See them both as, as who God is. Well, it still may be true what you're saying. If it lacks the fuller character of God, then it lacks what makes truth so sweet. Church, the goal is that the power of Christ is at work in us so that the character of Christ is coming forth when we speak truth in love. One final and very needed comment before moving on. The world and those of the world are always going to see the truth of God as unloving until they know the God of truth. This is because their definition of love is false. It is self-serving. It is counterfeit. John is clear in his letters to say that to know true love, you must know God. Why? Because God is love. And those who don't know God don't know true love. So that means in the fall, those who are still in the flesh, we're doing some kind of counterfeit, some kind of like second-rate thing that we call love. How, how can you? Why? Because you don't know God. So you don't know what real love is yet. And so therefore, your, your concept of what is loving as I speak truth is broken. And many times they'll hate it. Their definition of love is false. It does not honor God. It honors man. And so when confronted with the truth of God in a loving way, because the unbeliever is utterly offended by God's truth, they will not see it as loving. And you need to not be guilty of going, okay, then I'm sorry. Let me, let me love you differently according to your standard. No, no, we can't do that, church. You must be mindful that just because you are speaking truth and love doesn't mean it will always produce the result you want it to. The gospel is offensive to those who don't know it. Jesus, offensive 
to those who don't love him and serve him. What do he say? He says, they're going to hate you because they hate me. That's not talking about terrorists. That's talking about people in your own family. It's also talking about terrorists. Sorry, I just needed clarity there. When we share truth-filled words of Scripture about guilt and sin, our utter need for Christ as Savior, often people are greatly offended and the gospel is disregarded. You can be doing this in a most loving way, but they're still utterly offended at you. Hear me. When this happens, it doesn't mean that you are not loving enough. It could mean that. And I would encourage you, this is where community comes in. These are good moments to rally around mature believers and say, I'm about to have a tough conversation. Can you just think through a couple of these talking points? Like, am I coming into this guns blazing? I'm just going to mow them down. I mean, I'm going to tell them I love them. But then if it's all machine guns, like, that's not really going to work. You know, like, so how do I really love them in truth and love? There's good coaching. There's good accountability that helps those conversations. We're doing that in community. Husbands, wives, you need that even with each other. You need that encouragement, especially with those you're closest with. We're guilty of falling into routines. We're guilty of of, of speaking in ways that are not really loving. Why? Because we're so not patient with those we're closest with. We're so flippant with each other. It doesn't mean you weren't loving enough, though. It means the truth, no matter how loving it is, is still offensive to the unbeliever. For the superficial Christian, who is all too often guilty of repackaging the gospel into a narrative that they're more comfortable with, it's going to be offensive to them too. Let me show you how this often plays out with popular topics that we've talked about lately. When we lovingly share the truth-filled words of Scripture about the fact that an abortion of a living child in the womb that God has ordained life for an abortion of that child if that child is the result of a rape that that abortion is still murder and therefore unlawful by God's holy standard we don't repay evil for evil but the world will say How unloving of you to make that mother carry that child and bring it into this world. You see? See how they've defined love and repackaged that? Forget what God's Word says. Forget what what He's doing. I say that this is wrong. When we lovingly share the truth-filled words of Scripture about the fact that we are to use righteous judgment... And therefore, we cannot presume to know the intention of a person's feelings or actions as ethnically prejudiced without real evidence of being such. But they'll say, how dare you have such a lack of empathy for what the oppressed people groups of the world have gone through. Forget thinking righteously about it. Forget thinking about what God says we should do. 
we've decided there's a way to think about this and you're not doing that. Shame on you. When we lovingly share the truthful words of Scripture about what is biblical and sound doctrine and what is not, they say, who are you to tell me how I know God or worship God or should practice religion? And on and on, right? I could go through an ongoing list. I say this to make a very important point. It is up to the Lord and His Word to determine what is true and what is loving. It is not up to you or me, apart from the Word of Truth, apart from the God of Love, to do this. So we must not say that we're not being truthful or not being loving if we or others do not feel we're not. How often is that coming your way lately? I don't feel like what this is is loving or good. Okay, so, yeah, the Word says your feelings are broken as you'll get. Let's just go back to the Word to determine, is this true? Is this loving? Truth and love are not subjective to fallen man's feelings. They are and always will be defined and determined by God alone in what He has revealed in His holy written Word. And so there's a challenge before us because we can be guilty of playing into this game. We can be guilty of trying and then it doesn't work and I don't want to lose, lose this relationship with my loved one and so I'm going to slip off the slope a little bit and, and adjust. And then you stop truthing in love. You stop maturing in Christ. You, you really are beginning to serve other idols of your heart. And this we must identify, combat, repent of, and avoid. I will say it again, it is not loving to not speak God's truth. See Paul say, this is a critical part of how we grow up into Christ. How we practice and fight for ongoing unity. Truthing and love. You put this off, you are pulled over to the side of the street, and if not, beginning to go backwards. May this be who we are, church. May this be who we grow into becoming more and more in Christ. It will not be popular, but it will honor God. Amen? Look at the next point with me. Rather than speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Paul says that we are to grow up in every way. What does that mean, to grow up? It means to mature. It means to be complete. It means to be fully grown. Jesus is the epitome of mature, complete. This is back to what we talked about two weeks ago, Ephesians 4.13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. What is the definition of mature manhood? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are called to conform to Jesus, to be known for Jesus, to look more and more like Jesus. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Paul's emphasis is Christian maturity, spiritual growth. 
This is something that is meant to encompass every part of our lives. He says we are to grow up in every way. Are you guilty of compartmentalizing your Christian faith? Are you guilty of compartmentalizing your Christian growth? Hear Paul say clearly from God's Word, you are to be growing up, look at me, in every way, in every way. We need not compartmentalize that I'm doing this kind of over here and a little more over here and then I'm I'm doing it over here, but I'm not really attentive to it here and here and here. No, in every way. Are you guilty of compartmentalizing your Christian faith, your Christian growth? I met with a leader in our community this week for a couple hours to talk about what we do as a church to be laser-focused on discipleship. And one of the big points I made and why it's all too revolutionary and it just shouldn't be in the Christian church It's to say that true discipleship, true becoming like Christ, is not something that only applies to some of the areas of our life. It applies to all of the areas of our life. So why then, when we're trying to do discipleship, are we only willing to dig into some of the areas of our life? And my point was, here at Disciple Church, biblically, we're trying to do away with that I'll only be involved to the degree that I'm comfortable. No, the call is to put it all on the table, to be a living sacrifice. A true disciple says, here is my life. I want it all to look like Christ. If you're checking out our church and you're kind of thinking about, is this the place? Don't say, will I be comfortable here? That's the wrong question. A good church you should not be comfortable in. To be comfortable is to be left to wander, left to squander, left unchallenged. It's to be unloved. It's to value your your money or your presence or your serving more than your life on the altar for Christ. And so there's a reason why Disciples Church is not as big as many other churches in town. Because we're not about that. Because we're willing to go all the way. And there are people who discover along the way, yeah, I'm not really willing to go all the way. So I'm going to go find a church that I can kind of do it my way. All right, there's lots of them. The buffet is large. And my prayer is that more and more churches would do this. The gentleman I met with was, the, was with hopes to see this really mature in another body of believers here in our community. A true disciple says, here is my life. I want it all to look like Christ. I want every muscle to be retrained and to grow in righteousness. Now I get it. I get that there's some scary areas. We're like, man, but if you get into this bucket with me, we get into this corner of my closet, you know, you may not, you, you, you may not let me keep going. And, and, and I'm just here to tell you, like, hey, welcome to the party, because like, it's all around. You know what I mean? You're sitting among, around among, around a bunch of people who, by God's grace, have found the corners of the closet, and, and by God's grace, he's working and, and growing and maturing and taking us forward. And, and, and what's cool is, is people will come back and say, we're actually closer for having gone through that. That thing that I was so scared of revealing to you, that thing I was so feeling so guilty of, so, so, so burdened by, 
letting you in. I was, I was so ashamed of it. Once I finally did, we're closer. We're better. It, it's God's doing something. Man, that's what it's meant to be. And this is not something unique to Disciples Church. This is what God wants for us. This is what Paul is emphasizing here. We are to grow up in every way into Christ. This is why we call ourselves Disciples Church. Because the primary command of God on our lives as believers in these days is for the making of disciples. Making of mature Christ followers. People who are growing up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. This is the point of the work of the local church. This is the point of, of the missions work we're called to do around the world. So let's slow to really focus on that point because it's essential you get this. Christian growth is into Christ. The growing you need to do is in, it's not out. And this is a very largely misunderstood concept that you need to see rightly and there's a great correlation between this verse and what we see Jesus teach in John 15. So turn your Bibles there with me to John 15. I want to look at Jesus' words here for the remainder of our time together as a great help to our understanding of what Paul is emphasizing here in the second part of verse 15. John 15, verse 1 through 5, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. First see with me Jesus' emphasis of what is true. He says, I am the true vine. The word true is found in several other descriptions of the Lord. He is the true light, John 1.9. He is the true bread, John 6.32. Why this adjective of true is in these verses is to show us Jesus' completeness. It's not as much to say that the opposition is false, but that Christ is perfect, essential, and enduring. The other things are but a faint reflection of Him. They are the types and the shadows. He is the true thing. So Christ is the true light in contrast to his forerunner, John the Baptist, who was yet but a lamp, we read. Christ is the true bread in contrast from the manna that the, father, that the fathers of the faith ate in the wilderness, but then they died. Israel is referred to as the vine in the Old Testament, but Israel was an insufficient vine, pointing to the need for the true vine. In contrast to the incompleteness of the type that is Israel, Jesus says, I am the true vine, the antitype, which fulfills the expectations of the heavenly promises. The next part of Jesus' metaphor here in John 15 is to show the critical nature of the vine in the branch's life. Watch this. He says that we are the branches and he is the vine. What is a branch that is separated from the vine? A dead branch. Right? The branch can't produce fruit separated from the vine. It, it, it can't suck up onto the rock 
and grow some fruit. It cannot grow, it cannot mature, it cannot thrive, it cannot live or produce fruit attached to anything else. A rock, the dirt, the fence. Only the vine produces this in the branch. You likely know the seasons in your past where you as a branch were content to grow, to try to grow, without really being plugged into the vine. This cannot and will not ever produce spiritual maturity and growth. As branches, we are utterly desperate for the vine, who is Jesus. He is life. 1 John 5.12 He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus has not come to fulfill one aspect of life. He's not coming just to make this life better. He's coming to bring new and true life. He is life. We have no spiritual life without Christ. He is the one mankind's been waiting for from the beginning. He is the one you've been waiting for, whether you know it or not. Don't miss this essentially critical point. And Paul's emphasizing it too. The body without the head is what? Dead. It's graphically dead. How essential, see how essential and vital life in Christ is for our growing. The word Jesus used here for growing into is the word abide. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Can I just say abiding is always in relationship to divine fellowship. And only those who have been born again are capable of having divine fellowship with the Father. To be in Christ and to abide are two separate things. Not to be confounded. A, first, a person first must be truly in Christ. You must be grafted into the vine. Only then can you abide in Christ. The grafting in, the being in Christ, that's fully up to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The call on your life, if you don't belong to the Lord, is to repent and believe and be saved so that you can be grafted in. And only if you belong to Jesus, then can you abide in Jesus. Believers are never exhorted to find a way to be in Christ. You can't do that. God must do that. But when you are in Christ, the, the exhortation is that we are to abide. We are to grow into, to continue, to dwell, to remain, to fix on to stay plugged into the source. You don't thrive in the Christian life by turning away, by unplugging. It's in those seasons that you drift, that you wonder, that you slow down, that you begin to justify sin. To abide in Jesus is to remain constantly in His Word, acting for His glory, walking accountably in the body of Christ. You need to see how desperate you are for Him for spiritual life and maturity. I've used this metaphor. It's not perfect, but it helps. Jesus is not a defibrillator. He doesn't just start your heart and then you're good to go about your Christian life. He's more like a pacemaker. With, he is the source of that life. And without it, you don't work and you don't thrive and you can't mature you're dependent on him in every way 
This is why the vine and the branch metaphor is a perfect metaphor the Lord uses. The branch that is separated from the vine is dead. We need Jesus. We need to abide in Christ. To be utterly dependent on Christ for everything. Paul got this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He really understood that everything he did was in Christ. He was dependent on Christ for everything. But how many of us depend on and draw from and look to Christ only for the big things, but then we don't really abide in Him in the daily things. The real little things where Christ is at work. Pray and consider how we abide in Christ in the trip to the pantry. In the picking up of the phone call. In the driving through your neighborhood. In the buying that one thing at the grocery store when you're running late. In the flipping through the channels on TV. And on and on. Are you abiding in Christ in everything? Understand that fruit is character change. It's not exterior stuff. It's who you are. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit at work in you. So here it is. Christian growth is not out. If you think, I need to grow and mature, so I'm going to focus on being better at the fruit. I'm going to be more loving. I'm going to be more joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle. The, you as a branch don't grow fruit. Christian growth is not to work on that stuff. You don't say, I need more of that, so let's study that stuff. No. Christian growth is into Christ. If you're, if you're thinking about maturing the fruit, you're looking the wrong direction. Our focus needs to be into the vine. Into the head, Paul is saying today. Because when I'm fixed on Him, when I'm satisfied in Him, when my identity is in Him, when I'm trusting Him, when I'm obeying Him, the Spirit's work in me produces what? The fruit of the Spirit. That is the evidence of your abiding in Christ. And so it's religion to think, I just got to do this stuff better. No, put that away. That's not Christian growth. Christian growth is into Christ. This is Paul's emphasis. You're going to mature when you're abiding, when you're clean, when you're growing in every way into Him who is the head. It's always a deeper, more intimate, more steady, clean, and devotion to Jesus. Christian growth and maturity is in, it's not out. So what are you doing to more regularly and deeply then abide in Christ? If we want our children or our disciples to grow the fruit of the Spirit, they don't need to study on the fruit of the Spirit. They need a study that causes them to better cling to Christ. To see and savor Jesus. To trust Jesus. To know Jesus more and more. So again, I ask you, what are you doing? What are you regularly focusing on to focus on Christ, to grow in Christ, to trust Christ, to abide in Christ? Are you faithful in God's Word? Are you constant in prayer? Are you inviting others to reorient every part of your life to Christ? I 
I, I still struggle with it too. I need your prayers. I need your encouragements. But, but that phone call is a moment with that person to cling to Christ. My brother called me yesterday. We got to talk. And I was almost guilty of hanging up with him. After he shared some pretty intense stuff with me. I almost missed my moment to help reorient him to Christ. Together to go to Christ. So what do we do? I said, let's pray. And that, that's the good stuff. I, my, my counsel is all right. But taking you to Christ to fix on him, to trust him, that's the good stuff. Inviting others to reorient every part of our lives to Christ. How is your money abiding in Christ? How is your work abiding in Christ? How is your time with your family abiding in Christ? How is your eating abiding in Christ? This right here needs to be a topic of real discussion among us more than it is, church. It needs to be like breathing. It needs to be the focus of our days. Growing up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Next week we see why community is such an essential God-ordained part of this. But that's next week. Let's pray and let's worship God together. Father, we thank You for this time in your holy word what a joyful privilege it is to sit together with your word i'm thankful for the opportunity to study to pray to prepare to preach your word we, we need your word what's good about this sermon is only because of what's good about you what you're doing in us each of us right now is because of the work of the holy spirit the conviction, the maturing, the stirring, the motivating, that we would not leave the way we came in. Oh, what a joy it is to know you, to grow in you. Help us, Lord, to really, truly be truthing in love and growing into Christ. Christian maturity, for your glory, for others' good, for our joy. Hear us now as we worship you, as we sing out to the living God. In Jesus' name we pray.